tonight we will be looking at the first eight verses of James chapter 1. This section of scripture is actually one of my favorite sections of scripture because I come here often for comfort and strength when I face trials in my life. And as I share these verses tonight, I pray that you guys would be blessed by it and it would help bless you guys and help you guys when you're going through trials and tribulations that you may face as well. The book of James gives a lot of good advice on how to live as a Christian. James is a black and white type of writer. He does not leave a lot of gray area in his scripture. I like that. I'm black and white myself, so I can relate very well to him. He's short to the point about how to live for Christ. And in verse 1, the author of this book is established as James. There are multiple people named James in the Bible. So which James that was mentioned in the Bible wrote this book? The first James was one of the apostles. He was the brother of John, and he was walked with Jesus. However, it wasn't this James, because this James was martyred by Herod Agrippa I, and we read about that in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. Church history says that he was martyred around 44 AD. And also the Bible scholars have the age of the book to be written between 45 and 50 AD. So that rules him out. There was mentioned in Matthew chapter 10 verse 3, a second disciple named James. He was the son of Alphaeus, and he was the brother of Matthew the tax collector. He was one of the minor mentions. He was mentioned in the group of 12, but not much more was said about him. He was also known as James the Last, and, but it wasn't him either. Also in scripture, the father of Judas, not Iscariot, was named James as well. But the Bible scholars don't believe it was him. Most scholars believe the James that wrote this book is the half-brother of Jesus, also known as James the Just. Why does it matter who wrote this book? As we dig into the study tonight, it does make a difference on who wrote the book to see the perspective they were coming from. Let us pick up in verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes that were scattered abroad, greetings. All he says is his name is James. He does not give any other identifying mark of who he is except for his name. He says that he is a bondservant of God and of the Lord, Jesus Christ. This is important because he did not come out and say, look at me, I am the brother of, James, of Jesus. You need to listen to me because I have that authority from Jesus because I'm his brother. He didn't play the, I'm the brother of Jesus so you need to listen to what I say card. Many times in life we want to show our importance and our position in this world, and oftentimes we'll hear people say, my name is so-and-so, and here's my position. This is what I'm known for. Look at me. Worship, almost, it's like almost worship me or worship my position where I'm at. That's not the case. Sometimes they'll make themselves appear they're important by sharing their own or another person they know, mainly a relative's accomplishments, to everybody they see. It gets annoying from time to time. 
But that's not how James is here. James, the brother of Jesus, was not like that at all. He was willing to say that he was a bondservant of the Lord, and he did not elevate himself because of his close relationship with Jesus. I don't know about you, but I probably would say, hey, I'm the brother of Jesus. You need to hear me. You need to listen to me. But James didn't do that. He knew his place was to follow his brother and not to be that person. He identifies himself as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be a bondservant? Looking up the word bondservant in the Greek reveals the word doulos. And looking up doulos in the Vines Dictionary gives us the following definition. The lowest term in the scale of servitude. It also means one who gives himself up to the will of another. Basically, James was saying that he was willing to be a slave of Christ. He was choosing this freely to be that slave of Christ. And back in biblical times, for one to say that they were a slave in these times, they were saying they were putting themselves in the lowest position because slaves were not highly regarded. They were treated like dirt, if they were lucky sometimes. James made the choice to place Jesus as the master of his life and to submit to the will of the Lord and be a bondservant of the Lord. We read in scripture that James was not the only follower of Christ to voluntarily say he was a bondservant of Christ. In Romans chapter 1, we read where Paul identifies himself as a bondservant of Christ. We also read Peter identifies himself as a bondservant in 2 Peter chapter 1. And also another brother of Jesus, Jude, and James, another brother of Jesus is and James, named Jude, says this in Jude, verse 1. I don't know about you, but that's a lot of high-ranking people in the Bible that I strive to be like, but they're calling themselves bondservants of the Lord. It gives us something to attain to, to be a slave for the Lord. May we never think so highly of ourselves that we would not be willing to have that heart of a slave, of a bondservant for the Lord. And may we be willing to be slaves for Christ, placing our will aside and serve the Lord wherever he calls us to serve. And not to think of ourselves highly, higher than we really are. In the second part of verse 1 we read, To the twelve tribes which were scattered abroad, greetings. James wanted to make it clear that this was written to all who believe in Christ, not just to one church back in the first century. At this point in history, the believers had already been scattered over the new world, and James was addressing all the believers who read this letter. It's for us today as well. The scattering of the believers from Jerusalem to the entire known world was mentioned in Acts chapter 8, and it occurred approximately 10 to 15 years before this letter was written. This letter was sent out to encourage those who believe to be steadfast in the faith, no matter what they face or what we face today. Also, as we look deeper into this letter, we will see that James does not show a lot of grace. Like I said before, he's black and white. He tells you how it is. He lays out how to walk as a believer in Christ. In verse 2, we read, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. My brethren, this letter is written to James' brother and sisters in Christ. 
This letter is not addressed to someone who does not believe. It's addressed to those who believe in Christ. This is important because non-believers do not have the faith or the hope we have as believers in the Lord to be able to trust the Lord to carry them through the trials that they face. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. James tells us believers to count it joy when we face trials. Joy in the face of a major trial? This definitely makes no sense to someone who does not know the Lord because normally someone who's facing a trial that doesn't know the Lord, woe is me, poor me, look at all that I'm suffering. They don't grasp the concept of having joy during that trial. For anyone who might not know what the word joy means, Strong's Dictionary of the word joy says, cheerfulness, calm delight, and gladness. And according to the Strong's definition of joy, James is telling us to have cheerfulness, calm delight, and gladness when we face trials. Again, this is a hard concept to comprehend that a believer is supposed to have joy in their trials. Someone who does not understand this might think, to be cheerful and glad when I'm facing a trial? Are you crazy? How can I have joy when I'm facing this trial in my life, this major trial that there's no end to? Nobody understands what I'm going through. It is too much for me to handle. How can I have joy when I'm struggling, when I can't even hardly keep my head above water? But for us as believers, the answer to be able to have joy during a trial we face is the Lord. The Lord gives us strength to face the trials that we endure. A promise God gives us to help us through trials, and it's helped me many times through trials, is from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. We read there, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. When we trust the Lord with all of our heart and allow him to guide us during the trial we face, he will give us joy in the midst of the trial. Everything might be falling down, everything might look horrendous, but yet we still have that peace and that joy of the Lord in our heart to help us persevere. And then people are like, how can you have that joy when you're facing that? We're not the only ones who have gone through trials. I want to give a couple examples of people in the Bible that have gone through different trials. The first example comes from the book of Job. We read in the book of Job how a man named Job faced many trials. However, even during the trials, he still praised God for God's faithfulness to him. Even though God allowed him to be sifted by Satan, he still praised God for who he was. Job was a man who lost his property. He lost his children. He lost his health all in one fell swoop. And he also lost the support of his wife, the one that should be beside him building him up. She told him to curse God and die. But through all this, God was still praised by Job. Job was able to say in the midst of his trial, the Lord gave and the Lord take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Another person in the Bible that faced many trials was Paul. Paul started out as a persecutor of the Christians until Jesus came to him in Acts chapter 9 on his way to Damascus. And that's when Paul converted from being Saul to Paul. 
after coming to the Lord, Paul endured trials in the Lord. Paul's own words in 2 Corinthians 11 share some of the trials he went through. Picking up in verse 24. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides other things which come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. That's a lot of trials he endured for the Lord. And yet, even through all those trials, Paul still pressed forward and he still served the Lord. And God used him mightily. He wrote quite a few books in the New Testament while he was going through all those trials that we read about in 2 Corinthians 11. At the end of verse 2, James says, when you fall into various trials... James makes it clear that we will fall into various trials. It doesn't say if, it says when we face trials. If Job and Paul, and there's many others in scripture that face many trials, who are we to think that we are immune to facing trials in our life? I've heard Pastor Rob say the following about trials. As believers, we are either entering a trial, leaving a trial, or in the midst of a trial. There's no place to sit still as the next trial will be coming along shortly if we're coming out of a trial. If we're not currently in one, there will be one coming. We need to be preparing for the next trial that we may face through studying the word of God and being refined by the Lord. No different than a soldier prepares for battle by checking his weapons to make sure they are battle ready before the battle. And... I looked up the word trial up in the Webster's Dictionary, and here's the definition it gives. It gives a test of the performance, qualities, or suitability of someone or something. Another definition of the word trial is facing temptations. When we face trials in our life, we are being tested to see what's inside of us. And God will allow us to go through different trials to refine us. It's no different than a goldsmith putting gold through a refining fire to remove the impurities in it. In the refiner's fire, the impurities in the gold being refined will rise to the surface and be removed by the goldsmith. But God does the same thing with us as we go through the refining fire of a trial we may face. Those impurities that are deep lodged in our heart that we might not see on a day-to-day basis they get risen up and the Lord sees them and he comes in and he removes them out of our life and refines us to make us more like him. I'm not going to lie to you. The refining fire is very hot and it causes a lot of pain to the person being refined. However, when that refinement is over, both the gold when it's refined and the person that's being refined are purer than ever before. They are... (coughs) more holy, more precious than what they were because they went through the refiner's fire. 
The major difference between us and gold, though, is sometimes we can choose to avoid the refiner's fire. We can say, no, thank you, Lord, I'm not going through that, and I go do my own thing. But I encourage us not to do that. Let God refine us when we're going through that trial that we might be facing. Because if we don't learn from that trial, we'll go through it again. This will require us to go through the fire because God desires not to have impurities in us. And if we find ourselves going through the same trial over and over, maybe we're not allowing God to refine us the way he wants to refine us. And may we be willing to be yielding to the Lord to be refined the way he wants to refine us. Again, it is going to hurt. I'm not going to lie to you. It is going to hurt to go through the refiner's fire. And anyone who's been through a refiner's fire can testify to that. But however, when that season of fire is over, that purification is just so awesome. Just, I can't describe how awesome it really is. And it's because the Lord purified us. In verse 3, we see, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. I just said the worst word from the pulpit. I said patience. We all know believers who say, do not pray for patience. Because what happens is when we ask for patience, God gives us opportunities to grow in the area that we need the patience in. It is an uncomfortable, refining fire to go through when we ask for patience in a subject, then we get tested on it. Again, it is an almost forbidden word to speak because people are afraid to go through the refiner's fire that, is, that comes from it. Patience gets tried in many ways and in many forms and many different sources. Some ways are spouses, family, friends, co-workers, people on the road, etc., all, any and all of these areas can quickly test your patience and my patience. And this testing of us actually will reveal where we are at on inside, on the inside. If the person going down the road cuts us off and we want to tell them they're number one, that might not be the most Christian thing, but God's showing us that we still have anger in our heart and some stuff in our heart that needs to be refined. What does the word patience actually mean? In the Strong's Dictionary, we, it defines the word as cheerful or hopeful endurance and constancy. Constancy? What does this have to do with patience, and how does it fit? I looked up the word constancy on dictionary.com, and this is the definition it gives. It's the quality of being unchanging or unwavering, as in purpose, love, or loyalty, firmness of mind, faithfulness. It can also mean uniformity or regularity, as in qualities and conditions and variableness. In other words, to have patience is to have endurance and to be unchanging or unwavering. When one is faithful with what God has done for them and in them, it helps to build endurance in them. And helps them to become unwavering in their faith as it's been tried by the fires. It's been through the refining fire. It's been purified. It's been set apart by the Lord. Think of preparing for a marathon. Most of us in this room will not stop preparing for a full 26.2 mile marathon by running the full distance in one session. 
Might be a couple exceptions in here, but most of us, most of us won't go out and run 26.2 miles in one sitting. I'll be lucky to run 26.2 feet. But, but as one trains for a marathon, you build up your muscles, your lungs, and your entire body to be able to endure more and more distance. And you work your way up to complete the full marathon in one session. It might take a person years to work up to that, but by putting forth the effort to train for this, they build the stamina and the strength to endure the whole distance. Preparing for a marathon is no different than building up patience as a believer in Christ. As we face trials and the refining from the Lord, we grow stronger in the Lord and endure more and more we face when we're walking with the Lord. Basically, the patience builds our Christian entity up to help us to be able to say, you know what, I understand where you're coming from. I've been there, and this is how God helped me through that trial that I faced when I faced it. Trials we face are not here to produce faith in us, but the test of faith we claim to have. And sometimes it's to see if what we say is true or if we're just saying lip starving. Yeah, Lord, I'm, I'm following you, but this person really irks me. Lord, refine me. Help me to love them like you love them. And to have faith, Paul tells us in Romans ten seventeen. so faith comes by hearing and the hearing by the word of God. Our faith comes from the word of God. What it says, it's not from what others say or from any other source. As we train for our Christian walk and endure the trials that we endure in our walk with Christ, it will produce the patience we need to have with others and face the circumstances we may face. And in turn, it strengthens our faith in the Lord. As mature saints, we know we didn't know them when they were first walking out. They were probably completely different than they are when you learn to see how they are now. But God had to refine them, put them through the refiner's fire, and purify them to help them to be where they are at. And he can do the same thing with each and every one of us that's willing to yield to the Lord. In verse 4 we read, But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. As we allow patience to have its work in our life as a believer to strengthen us spiritually, it will cause us to become more Christ-like. And Jesus is the ultimate example of someone who was patient. Because if he wasn't patient, he would have zapped all of us by now for the sins that we've committed up to this point in our lives. An example of Jesus' patience is given in John 21. Peter and the other disciples decided, you know what? We're going back to our livelihood. We're going fishing. They saw Christ rise from the grave, but they still like, we're going back to our old life. Jesus went where they were at and met them, and he had a conversation with Peter. And many of us relate to Peter as it took him a while to grasp what Jesus was trying to tell him. Yet Jesus showed Peter patience. In John chapter 21, we read Jesus asking Peter, do you love me? Three times. When one looks at the Greek word for love in John 21, we see Jesus ask Peter the first two times if he agaped him. In other words, Jesus asked if Peter loved Jesus unconditionally. Peter responded that he phileo him, 
meaning that he had a brotherly love towards him, but not an unconditional love to Jesus. At this point, Jesus should have zapped Peter. But he didn't. Even more so, a few days before that, Peter had denied even knowing Jesus right before Jesus died on the cross. So if anyone had a reason for God to say, you know what, I'm done with you, was Peter. Jesus did not give up on Peter. He showed Peter patience and met Peter right where he was at. Jesus asked him if Peter phileo him, and Peter said, you know I phileo you. As Jesus is the perfect example of patience, let us look to him through the trials we face for that joy, comfort, and strength we need to endure the trial we're facing. As we allow God to refine us, we allow the Lord to come in to build that patience in us. We become less like little children who stomp off and take our toys with us when things don't go our way, to being that mature saint that I mentioned. People come to and say, you know what, I'm struggling. How'd you make it through this? We know you've been through this. How do you do it? I thank God daily for his patience with me because, honestly, I would have zapped myself if I was God. But I know I can test his patience, but I'm thankful that he has long-suffering towards myself and towards everyone else here. In verse 5, we read, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. How often do we not know what to do when we're in the midst of a trial? We look at the trial and it's like, how do I do this? I have all these bills due and I have no money in my bank account. What do I do? James gives us the answer on how to handle this in verse 5, the trial. The answer is to ask God for wisdom through the trial. And the Strong's definition for wisdom is broad and full of intelligence, used of the knowledge of very diverse matters. When we don't know what to do in a situation, we need to ask God for an answer on the situation. And we also need to wait on God for an answer, not just say, okay, God, okay, I'm done. I'm going to go do my thing now. No, we need to sit and wait for the Lord to answer us. Give him time, because God is patient. And his timing is so much better than our timing. And maybe we need to be patient and wait on him. Maybe that's what God's trying to instill us in that trial. I don't know. James has not given us advice that he did not apply in his own life either. He practiced what he preached. Church history records this concerning James. And he was in a habit of entering alone into the temple and was frequently found upon his knees begging forgiveness for the people so that his knees became hard like those of a camel. That's some serious prayer there, guys and girls. That's knees like a camel. It took a long time for someone's knees to get to that point. It's not like he went down and prayed at the altar for five seconds every six months. He was constantly on his knees and seeking God often. James was a man of prayer who sought the will of God. And when we are seeking an answer to the question, we need to seek the Lord ourselves, and he will give us wisdom for the questions that we have for him. 
we have the same God available to us today as James did back, back in the church days. He shows us what to do. James shows us we do not have to be afraid to ask God for wisdom in a situation. In fact, God wants us to seek wisdom from him, and he will give wisdom to all freely who ask of him. In verse 6 we read, But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. The only caveat of asking God for wisdom is that we must have faith that God will do what he says he will do. And for those who might not know what faith is, faith actually, the definition of faith can be found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And having faith is a powerful thing. And we read it about in scripture about those who have faith in the Lord. Hebrews 11 is a very good chapter. It's called the faith chapter, the hall of faith, where we read about many different Old Testament believers that had faith in God, and God actually came and met them and delivered them and met them exactly where they were at. And God showed himself faithful to these Old Testament believers saints i would encourage you to read these stories on your own to see how god has shown himself faithful to all these different people listed in hebrews 11 if we doubt what god says james tells us that we are like a wave of the sea and tossed by the wind we are saying to god that we do not believe that he can do what he says one commentator says this about the waves of the sea A wave of the sea is a fitting description of one who is hindered by unbelief and unnecessary doubts. A wave of the sea is without rests, and so is the doubter. A wave of the sea is unstable, and so is the doubter. A wave of the sea is driven by the winds, and so is the doubter. A wave of the sea is capable of great destruction, and so is the doubter. Adam Clark is quoted to say this concerning the subject. The man who is not thoroughly persuaded that if he asks of God, he shall receive, resembles a wave of the sea. He is in a state of continued agitation, driven by the wind and tossed, now rising by hope, then sinking by despair. When we doubt the Lord, we lose our rest, our peace, our joy. We become unstable, and we also become surrounded in despair and hopelessness. Does this sound like a person who has their faith planted in the Lord? No, it doesn't. For someone who is weary, I would encourage them, again, to go to Hebrews 11 and to see God's past faithfulness to his people in times of distress. And verse 7 and 8 For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. When we ask God to assist in an issue, but we doubt he's actually going to answer us, we are being double-minded. We say one thing, but we do another. We believe some in God. However, in our minds, we doubt God can or will answer our request. Looking up double-minded in the Vines Dictionary, it literally means to be two-souled. 
William, William Barclay has this to say about the double-minded man. One believes, the other disbelieves, and the man is walking a civil war in which trust and distrust of God wage a continual battle against each other. Has all of us who have done that, we know that in a struggle inside us, okay, Lord, we know you say you're going to do it, but do we really believe that you can do it? Do we really believe that you are almighty? You are the creator. You are the one who can set us free. You are the one that can give us the desire of our heart. When we are warring inside with this civil war, we become unstable in all that we do all that we touch, all that we're around, because we're given lip service to the Lord. However, we really don't believe what we're saying. The believing part in us wants to live for him, wants to press forward towards him, wants to have a deeper relationship with him. Yet the unbelieving part in us wants to live like the world, wants to say, you know what, I tried this God thing, and it didn't work for me, so I'm going to go live like everyone else because they're being blessed. They have all the money. They have all the things. And I have, all I have is all these trials. If one is not careful, they can become just like the person Jesus mentions in Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives the parable of the sower in the four different grounds. I'm speaking of the one particular ground where... The seed started out well. It started growing, it started blooming, getting ready to bloom. And then the weeds came in and choked it out. It's no different than the double-minded person. I want to serve the Lord, but I don't want to serve the Lord. They can become caught up in the cares of the earth, and they can be turned away from the Lord because they were being distracted by the things of the world. As believers, we need to allow the Lord to do his work in us and trust the Lord to, and, that, and believe that he is going to do what he says he will do for us. For anyone who might find themselves in the civil war, Jesus gives us a verse to help us with our unbelief. I've had to use this many times when I've struggled with unbelief myself. Mark 9.24 says, and it says, Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said to tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus met the man and healed the boy, healed the child. And if the Lord's willing to do that, he can help us overcome this civil war that we might have inside us. And heal us inside and help us to be wholeheartedly pressed forward towards the Lord. But we have to be willing to yield ourselves over to the Lord. Tonight we looked at the first eight verses in the first chapter of James. We saw in verse 1 where James did not esteem himself higher because he was the brother of Jesus. He was willing to consider himself a slave of God's. We also looked at, in verse 2, what it means to count it all joy when we face trials in our life as we will face trials in our life. It's not if, it's when. We saw in verse 3 where the trials were here to help produce patience in us, to help us to grow closer to the Lord, and how it is 
refining us to make us more like the Lord. We read in verse 5 that we need to ask God for wisdom and to seek him for wisdom and not doubt him when we seek him. We need to say, okay, Lord, whatever you say goes, and I'm going to follow you no matter what. We also see what happens when we actually doubt the Lord when we say, okay, Lord, I need you, but I don't need you. And how we can become double-minded and unstable because of our doubting of the Lord. My heart tonight is that we would lean upon the Lord when we face trials. And that we would trust the Lord to answer our prayer request and to help us through the trials that we may be facing. For some of us, we might be lacking the joy of the Lord. Some of us might be fighting God. Some of us might be in the refiner's fire that he has us going through right now. And some of us might be just coming out of it. No matter where we're at, though, may we be willing to yield to the Lord and allow him to work on our hearts and help us to press forward towards him and to have more and more faith and belief and trust in our Lord and Savior. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for dying on the cross for our sins, Lord. And Lord, I thank you, Lord, for meeting us here this evening and sharing through your word, Lord, what you have for us tonight, Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would come and minister to each and every one of us where we're at, Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would comfort those who are going through trials, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would just help us, Lord, to continue to have the faith to press forward towards you more and more each and every day, Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we each would have a heart to be a bondservant for you, Lord Jesus. Not be puffed up, not be prideful of who we are, but may we be proud of who our Savior and who our God is, Lord, and not be afraid to tell the world of you, Lord Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that for anyone, Lord, that might not know you that hears this message, Lord, I pray, Lord, that they would put their first step of faith in you by accepting you as their Savior, Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord, that they would just say yes to you, Lord Jesus. In your precious name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.